hello and welcome to the Good Mood Podcast. My name is Dr. Talia Marcajani. I'm a naturopathic doctor registered in Ontario, and I have a focus in mental health, hormones, and mood. And this is the Good Mood Podcast. This is episode 54, Depression and the Impossible Task. Depression is a sneaky little bugger. Most people associate it with sadness, crying, etc., especially if you've never experienced it. And yes, while sadness can be a common feature of depression, low motivation and activation, leading to something that is sometimes termed the impossible task, can be pretty universal as well. The impossible task can be something like going to the post office, having a shower, sometimes a seemingly simple task that is just seemingly impossible in the eyes of the person who's suffering from depression. And in this solo episode, I highlight the features of the impossible task, explain why it exists from a biochemical neuroscience perspective, also using polyvagal theory. And then I also address some ways that we might tackle it with curiosity and compassion to help dispel some of the shame and misconceptions around it and to help someone who's suffering move forward and engage with the impossible task in a way that feels healing. So listen on. This is also on YouTube where there are lecture slides. So feel free to like and subscribe to the YouTube channel that I have. If you look at, if you search for Dr. Talia Marcajani ND in a YouTube search bar, you'll be able to find me. And with this podcast, I really welcome your feedback. Let me know what you think of this episode. Make sure that you follow. If you are following us on Apple, could you please give us a review? Let us know what you think and tell me what else you'd like to see on this pod. Thanks so much for listening. And without further ado, here's the episode. Hello everyone. My name is Dr. Talia Marcajani. I'm a naturopathic doctor, and today I want to talk about depression and the impossible task. So I was perusing social media, and a friend shared a Twitter post. The The Twitter poster is M. Molly Bax, and she, or they, describes this situation that is very common. She says, depression commercials always talk about sadness, but they never mention that sneaky symptom that everyone with depression knows all too well, the impossible task. The impossible task could be anything, going to the bank, refilling a prescription, making your bed, checking your email, paying a bill. From the outside, it's suddenly impossible and makes zero sense. The impossible task is rarely actually difficult. It's something you've done a thousand times. For this reason, it's hard for outsiders to have sympathy. Why don't you just do it and get it over with? It would take you like 20 minutes and then it would be done. Oh, we know. If you're grappling with an impossible task, you already have these conversations happening in your brain. Plus, there's probably an even more helpful voice in your brain reminding you of what a screw-up you are for not being able to do this seemingly very simple thing. 
Another cool thing about the impossible task is that it changes on you. One time it might involve calling someone, but maybe you can work around it by emailing. Another time it's an email issue. Then when you think you have it pinned down, you suddenly can't do the dishes. If you currently have one or more impossible tasks in your life, be gentle with yourself. You're not a screw up. Depression is just an asshole. Impossible tasks are usually so dumb that it's embarrassing to ask for help, but the people who love you should be glad to, to lend a hand. If you have a depressed person in your life, ask them what their impossible tasks are and figure out ways to help without judgment. A friend once picked me up, drove me the two blocks to the pharmacy and came in to help me refill a prescription. Two blocks. It was an amazing gift. The one good thing about struggling with impossible tasks is that they help you to be gentler and more empathetic with other people in your life because you know what it's like. You know. The trick is to turn that gentleness and empathy toward yourself. So why may we be dealing with this? So I love this post first because it acknowledges and validates the problem. It can help us recognize that we're faced with an impossible task. It highlights the shame and stigma that we might be imposing on ourselves or others may impose on us who don't understand. And it also invites people who have someone who's dealing with depression in, in someone in their life who's dealing with depression to also be empathetic and to be able to reach out in a meaningful way to help that person. Imagine if you're a depressed person, having somebody close to you contact you and ask you what your impossible task is. And then if you didn't understand what they meant, explaining to you, hey, is there something that's just impossible for you to get done right now, even though it seems really easy? That's a symptom of depression. And if you want, I can help you out with it, even if it's just sitting with you to talk it through. Mental health memes like this, I think, are really helpful because they get us talking. They start to shine light on shame. Shame doesn't survive in the light. When we pull it out of the shadows, we start to talk about it. We start to acknowledge it. We start to recognize it. And there's there's validation that automatically comes with it. So how does a narrative like this if you're dealing with depression or anxiety for that matter, how does a narrative like that impossible task narrative make you feel? And this is an important thing to, again, acknowledge and validate. Does it help you feel empowered? Does it help you feel seen, validated, understood? And is there a part of it, though, that makes you feel hopeless and confused? So why might we deal with this impossible task? Why might it happen? I think we can turn to polyvagal theory as one example, just to understand a little bit more about what depression is to our nervous system. So in polyvagal theory, we have these three states of the nervous system. We have our ventral vagal state, which is where we feel safe and social. We have our sympathetic, which I spelled wrong, fight or flight state, and we have our dorsal vagal shutdown state. I like to use this analogy. Imagine you're a deer and you're with your deer family and you're at the edge of the woods eating grass. Do deers eat grass? Maybe you're eating leaves at the edge of the woods. 
and you're, you're in ventral vagal state. This is the natural default state for mammals who are social creatures. You are eating, you're, you're, you're resting and digesting, let's say. You're with your family, you're feeling calm. And then all of a sudden, out of the bushes, you, feel, you hear something, you feel something. You look and there is a coyote. And immediately, what your nervous system will do in order to protect you is activate your sympathetic fight or flight state. In polyvagal theory, we call this dropping down the ladder. What are you going to notice? You're going to have a racing heart. You're going to start sweating. Your blood is going to pump to your extremities. Every single cell in your body is going to be geared towards survival, to fight or flight from the danger. So everybody takes flight. Maybe one of you gets caught. He or she or they are going to struggle and try and get away from the danger, maybe activating more of that flight impulse. Let's say that doesn't happen. You don't survive. Nature has conserved has, has conserved a method of survival for when we are no longer effective at fighting or fleeing from danger. This is called the dorsal vagal state in which the body goes limp, heads into shutdown, and essentially prepares to be eaten. You see animals go into this state. Like if you've ever had your dog or cat get really sick, they'll get low, they'll get sad, and they'll go hide somewhere. In our shutdown state, which is a completely normal state for the nervous system, when it feels like it can no longer get out of threat, how does this look? You're not necessarily a deer being eaten, but let's say you've been dealing with chronic low-grade stress. A lot of people will describe that they've just been stressed out on and on and on and on and on, and they were hanging on, hanging on, hanging on for this, this finish at the end of the marathon they've been running for months or years. And then something goes wrong. A contract doesn't go through. You get laid off. Something happens to a family member. Or you just can't take it anymore. And that's usually when my patients will express that they head from a low-grade anxiety state or a chronic stress state to their depressed episode or their shutdown state. Shutdown is characterized hormonally by cortisol resistance. So your body is making a lot of cortisol to get out of danger when it's in the sympathetic state. And once it's in shutdown state, it stops responding efficiently to cortisol. Cortisol is anti-inflammatory and is involved in motivation and alertness. Obviously, you don't want a lot of cortisol hanging out in your body chronically all the time. Your body just can't sustain that. But when you're stressed, you need a certain level of cortisol to feel good. And if that same amount of stress persists, like the coyote now has you in its jaws, and your body is just can't sustain that level of stress, you start ignoring cortisol signals, just like somebody with type 2 diabetes might start ignoring insulin signals and become insulin resistant. And this day is characterized by inflammation because cortisol is anti-inflammatory. If you're no longer responding to cortisol, inflammation can start to result. You might start getting every single cold that comes through. You might feel achy or puffy, brain fog, like just like it's hard to find words. Inflammation is the state uh, like where everything doesn't feel good. So your brain feels ineffective. You feel tired. You feel cranky. You feel pissed off. It's harder to emotionally regulate and you feel totally shut down. 
This starts to affect levels of serotonin and dopamine, but those are not the direct cause of what you're feeling. For so many years, depression has been blamed on serotonin deficiency in your brain. And yes, serotonin is involved in mood, serotonin necklace, (laughs) and serotonin is um, sometimes stolen in a state of inflammation to make something called quinolinic acid through this kynurenine pathway. So the starting, the building block of serotonin, tryptophan, goes into to make an inflammatory marker instead of serotonin. And so, yes, when you're depressed and have inflammation in your brain, because you're in this shutdown state, you're going to not be making enough serotonin. The symptoms uh, when you're in shutdown, when you're in this dorsal vagal response are this weariness. Of course, if somebody adds something else to your plate, you're in a coyote's jaws. You can't take that on. Your internal resources are, are completely spent and therefore you feel very exhausted. It's difficult to get out of bed. Mood is obviously low. There's often a feeling of helplessness, like nothing can make this better. And that's often because this is our nervous system's response, right? You tried to escape from the coyote and it didn't work. And so now you're preparing to submit essentially, or your nervous system is. This is not a conscious choice. This is the nervous system's response to what it perceives to be events happening to you. People often feel like there's no point. There's often self-criticism. We usually turn this low-grade anger, helplessness, or hopelessness on ourselves. Shame and isolation. So think of the dog who goes and hides under the couch if he's feeling sick. He withdraws from the rest of of the group. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's very important for motivation. So think of like nuts and knowledge. So it's involved in seeking, in gaining buried treasure, in pursuing something meaningful and motivating. Dopamine is usually rewarded at the completion of an action, not the initiation. So once you've, when you're, you know, when you've got the bag of chips in your hand, you get a hit of dopamine. When you like win at poker, tons of dopamine, And when your brain learns that those actions are rewarding, it starts to enforce those pathways that led you to that task to get you that dopamine hit. But a lot of things don't really intrinsically give you this dopamine. Like think of completing an hour-long yoga class. You might get dopamine because you completed this task, but very likely you're just going to feel kind of chill and good and happy that you did it, but not this like ping of excitement. And when you're dealing with depression or you're feeling shut down, it's very difficult for your brain to make dopamine. Low dopamine in the brain usually feels like like life is sort of gray and pointless. It's hard to come up with words and remember names for things, names for people. It feels like it's difficult, like you're not articulate and everything just sort of feels slow and pointless. So low dopamine in the brain usually equals low motivation and low activation. So I was thinking about the impossible task the other day because 
I was having a shower <laughs> and I was just thinking, it's hard to have a shower. I kept wanting to put it off. And I think I went, a f- not to be gross or to be judged, but I think I went a few days without having it. I just kept thinking like, oh, I don't really need to do it today. I work from home. I think I had a day off. I was like, I can do it tomorrow. And it just kind of kept going. And then I was like, well, my hair doesn't look that bad or I don't smell that bad. I don't really need to have a shower. And then eventually it got to a point where there really wasn't any other option. I had to have a shower if I wanted to thrive in society. And so I ended up having it. And it, it really wasn't until I was completely compelled to do it because the consequences of not acting would be greater than, than, you know, than, than not doing it. And when I got to the conditioner part, when I was in the shower, which is almost like at the end, like you put the conditioner in, you rinse your hair. So you you, you get in the shower, you wet everything, you get your shampoo, you lather it up, you wash your body. Then I rinse out the shampoo, put in the conditioner, rinse the conditioner, and then I'm good if there's no shaving involved. And once I was at the conditioning part, I was like, I remember really distinctly thinking, is this it? And I thought, you know, it's not that bad, but this task really was an impossible task when I was confronting it. And so when it comes to the impossible task, these tasks of daily living, the thing is that they're a a perpetuating cycle. When we're in shutdown state, when we're in that dorsal vagal state, we actually do need to activate in order to move up the ladder to return to safe and social And that's why you see so many studies or many psychiatrists and family doctors recommend exercise as a first-line treatment for depression because it helps to activate the body and wake up the nervous system. Imagine that the coyote all of a sudden gets scared off and leaves you, the deer, your deer again, alone. What immediately starts to happen in nature, and this is documented in Peter Levine's work, is the animal starts involuntarily shaking. It's almost like they move through a panic attack state and and remove all those stress hormones from their body, reset their nervous system, and then go and join their family and go back to eating leaves. And so it is important to engage in impossible tasks, especially if they are important and especially if they're really presenting themselves to you. This doesn't mean to engage in every single impossible task or to, when you get a surge of energy, go and just like return to the level of activity and stress that you were in before. But it is important to face the shower if that's what you're up against. And I thought about this and I thought, well, it was important for me really to dissect down the problem, especially if it's something longer than a shower Like what actually needs to be done? How urgent is it? What are my thoughts surrounding it? What obstacles are there? Often there's really just one major obstacle, like walking the two blocks to the post office that the meme or the Twitter um, description described. Or sometimes it's just putting your shoes on. Or sometimes for me with the shower, it was putting myself in front of the shower 
And then thinking about having wet hair after. Like figuring out what to do with my wet hair. Is it, was I going to dry? Was I going to go to sleep in wet hair? That was the obstacle to having the shower. And I always think about this because a few years ago, I thought, oh, it'd be so great to ride my bike to work. Before, when we were doing work, when we were at work, when I was at work. And I thought, you know, and I, I had this, this image of myself mid-cycle, like mid-route, happy. There's trees. I feel free. I feel excited. I feel good. I'm biking. I'm getting there faster, but I'm concerned. I'm helping the environment. I'm one of these cool people. I had this very romantic idea, this image in my head of the good part of it. And I wasn't doing it. I wasn't biking. Every single day, it would come time for me to leave. I'd either walk, which is great, but it takes way longer, or I'd drive or take the, the bus. And I just thought, why? Why do I not end up? It just, I just didn't feel like it. I just wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't do it. And then I started to actually dissect it down. Why am I not doing it? And I realized that the image in my head I had, because just like we have a positive image of what something will be like, we can also hold a negative image. And sometimes we can be unaware of that image is. The negative image was me pulling, pushing my bike up the parking garage slope. And it just felt like I didn't really want to do it, know how to do it. What if a car comes? It's going to make me sweaty. What if I get grease from the chain on my pants? That was it. And so when we're faced with the impossible task, it's important to acknowledge that we are up in front of the the Black Mountain, what James Hillman, psychoanalyst, calls the Black Mountain. Everything is overwhelming. And it seems like we may be faced with a simple task, but inevitably what we're doing is making the task mean something. And maybe it does mean something. It's probably not the post office, but our projection of how we'll feel when we're walking there. And this is the thing too, when the body's in a shutdown state, activation sometimes doesn't feel good. It's sometimes because think of how you're moving up the ladder through the sympathetic fight or flight state. And sometimes we just, the, the task is actually too much. So think of like, if you are lying on the couch and you feel really lightheaded, the idea of running may actually, what if your body can't mount that stress response? We end up usually feeling lightheaded, nauseous, more exhausted, panicky. And we also may be subconsciously projecting how we'll feel about ourselves if we fail. And so when faced with the impossible task and trying to get through it, it may be helpful to think like, what does it feel like? What are the benefits of having it done? Maybe it, it will be better than you thought, right? When I was in the shower at the conditioner stage, I thought it's not that bad. Why was I putting this off so much? Often what happens is when we have the experience of being faced with the black mountain and even maybe try, attempting to scale it or even succeeding in getting to the top, when we reflect on that whole story, we often focus on the overwhelm that we felt at the base of it, the stress of taking the first step. 
And sometimes that whole experience is colored by the unknown. When we've done it before and it was messy or incomplete, and sometimes we're also not giving ourselves credit for the fact that the pa- that past experience teaches and this time it might be easier. So meal prep, for example, the first time you go to the kitchen and you decide that you're going to prep a bunch of meals for the week, you're going to try this new thing, you're going to be like one of those people, you know, there's a mess everywhere, you don't know what container to use, you don't know how long to cook the chicken for. The first time is not a true reflection of what it will be like the 10th time. The 10th time you, you'll have a podcast on, you won't even be thinking about it. You'll be telling your kids what, what color pants they should wear tomorrow. And it'll go by like gangbusters. So, but the problem is sometimes we, we project into the future what we think it'll be like, sometimes based on our past experience, which may have been negative. And we also don't linger, give ourselves credit for the the positive aspects of the experience before. So there's a few steps we can do that may be helpful in tackling the Black Mountain. How do you tackle it? You tackle it one piece at a time, one step at a time. So the first important thing to do is acknowledge. This is a symptom of depression. That's what the meme did for us. That's what that, well, it's not really a meme, it's a Twitter. That's what that Twitter post did for us. It was, it was call it something, name it. The second step is to validate. There's a real reason that I'm feeling this way. There's a reason that this feels hard. And you may have an explanation. This is what I try and do with patients is give them some context, maybe a biochemical context for how they feel. This is why that serotonin theory of depression is so powerful because it takes the shame off. It medicalizes it. It it makes it about biology. And while that's not necessarily an accurate theory or fully accurate, it is about biology because our biology and our psychology and our environment are all connected in the biopsychosocial theory. Know that your nervous system is responding in a way that it was built to based on external circumstances, many of which are probably out of your control. And that's going to influence your thoughts. And there are actual, there's actual research on why this happens. We have chemicals that describe why this happens. And it's also important to note to note that you're not broken, that this isn't something wrong with your brain. This isn't necessarily, it's not a disease in the way that something is malfunctioning, needs to be replaced. Medication can be really helpful for a lot of people, but it's not like insulin for type 1 diabetes where you need this to survive because we've isolated the thing that's wrong, the the thing you were missing that you weren't born with, that again, isn't your fault. It's not like that with depression. It's a normal response to abnormal circumstances, and it's the body's way of protecting itself. And so it may be helpful to think of it as being stuck, not broken. And when we see something as an external event and not an internal issue, maybe that can be helpful. If I'm stuck, well, the solution is to get unstuck somehow. It's not going to be easy, but what can I do about it? If I'm broken, there's not a lot of options for me other than to be fixed. 
And usually that means I have to go and seek that fixing outside of myself. And there's also a possibility that when something's broken, sometimes it just can't be fixed. But when something's stuck, there are many ways you can jiggle it loose or get it free again. Noticing and naming is part of this process of acknowledging and validating. So according to Deb Dana, who really likes polyvagal theory, your story follows your state. So it's not so much that we can control what's going on, but if you're noticing very anxious thoughts, thoughts about the future, worrisome thoughts, maybe you're in that sympathetic fight or flight state. If you're noticing thoughts like there's no point or who cares or I'll never be able to do it, that sounds a lot like being in the stuck, in the dorsal vagal shutdown state. So it may be helpful to notice what thoughts are growing through your head and not judging them, not saying these thoughts are wrong or, oh my gosh, my thoughts are terrible, but maybe also while you notice those thoughts, wondering if they're true. This doesn't mean that you have to argue with your thoughts, but just create a little bit of space, a little bit of, when we ask a question, we are embodying the spirit of curiosity. When we're curious, there's a little bit of space and distance, and you can't really judge something when you don't know much about it. If you don't know if it's true or what it's all about, and that may be a helpful attitude to have towards some of these thoughts. So thoughts like, there's no point, who cares, I'll never succeed anyways, or it won't make a difference. These are all thoughts that characterize that shutdown state of depression. And they're actually normal. Story follows state, as Deb Dana, one of the proponents of polyvagal theory says. And sometimes it's helpful to just notice the thoughts and recognize that they're there. They're not you. They're not necessarily true. They're reflective of the state your body and nervous system are in. And Again, that state is, an, is actually a normal biological response to repetitive and ongoing stress and depression. So this is my favorite part. This is the questioning and dissecting. <laughs> so what parts of going through the process, when you imagine the impossible task, when you imagine that black mountain out in front of you, what parts of going through the process of completing the task feel the hardest? Now, know that this is not always obvious. Like I didn't know what was preventing me from running my bike to work and that it was going up the stairs. And that every time I thought of that, which was one of the first steps in riding my bike and getting to that place where I was like free and cool and, you know, getting on my own motor power. I didn't realize that that was the thing preventing me, that that image. And so just asking the question may illuminate some aspects of this task for you. Like if you're told by your naturopathic doctor to take your supplements, what part of it feels impossible? For a lot of my patients, their, their obstacle comes when they've forgotten to take the supplements in the morning where they they may have been told, oh, take them in the morning with food. The morning comes and goes, and now it's lunchtime, or now it's dinner time, and they're not sure if they can still take them. And that amount of mental activity and uncertainty blocks them, and then they don't take them. 
And so sometimes once you've identified that, it can be so easy because then I, the naturopath, can just say to them, oh, it's totally fine to take it at lunch or just take it when you remember. Or this one you can take whenever you remember. Or this one you can take, a, you know, if you've forgotten three days in a row, you can take three doses and do what we call a bolus dose. So sometimes identifying what part is difficult or what part blocks you could be incredibly helpful information. And can also lead to understanding why the task is so impossible without the need for judgment, you know, because it was actually pretty responsible to just to wonder if you were still, if it was still okay to take the supplements at lunch or at dinner time, or if it really, they really had to just only be taken in the morning. And therefore there's a responsibility and an attentiveness to the task that you maybe weren't giving yourself credit for. What parts do I dread the most? If someone had a magic wand and they waved it over your task, it could make one part of it disappear. What part would that be? What experiences have I had with this task? So in the example of the meal planning, have I done it once before and it went wrong? That may feel like a giant obstacle. And and then again, you can go back, you can cycle through these questions again. Well, what part of it was the worst? Was it that I didn't know how many containers I had? Sometimes when we're in the questioning stage, we feel like we need to jump to a solution right away. Sometimes a solution appears, you know, pretty obviously, but sometimes it doesn't. And so feel like you can linger in this stage and you don't have to write these things down. You can just think them through, contemplate them. What what assumption? So am I assuming anything about what completing this task will be like? And what parts are unknown about this task if you haven't done it before? So for example, I just have a story that happened to me today. I had booked an appointment to go get blood work done. And I tried to book it early in the morning. And I was feeling a little bit anxious about it. And I just, you know, cause you, you can't eat. And then I, I really wanted coffee, but I couldn't have coffee and I had to go downtown. So I couldn't get an appointment at a place near me for the date that I wanted. And so I drive downtown, I'm making good time. I'm about going to be about 20 minutes early. And that's also not that like, I didn't really like that either. I'm going to sit there. I'm, I'm uncertain about where to go, where it's, what it's going to be like, what it's going to look like, how, what it's going to be like to wait 20 minutes, you know, are they going to take me in right away? Are they not going to take me in? And as I'm getting there, I'm having a lot of trouble finding a place to park. I park on the street. And then as I go to pay, it tells me I can't park until 9.30 a.m. And so then I try and find, then everything is that you're allowed to park in is blocked. Obviously, it's Toronto. And then I started looking at the clock. And now it's the time of my appointment. And then I'm thinking, they're probably not going to let me in. And what if I pay for parking? And it's like 15 bucks. And then they don't even, they, they don't let me because they gave my appointment away to someone else. And I turned around and went home. And the moral of that story, I, I actually, to be honest, didn't feel too bad about the fact that I just turned around and went home. I, you know, it gave me some compassion for people who miss appointments, for sure. Because especially when they're trying to commute to my office or w- when that was happening. But it also help me understand, you know, when things are unknown, they can seem very impossible. And, and so what I did was I I rebooked an appointment for the place that I know that's close to me. Sometimes we can't make 
the unknown known and we have to take a chance. And, you know, again, we're just asking questions here and dissecting the mountain. We're not necessarily coming up with solutions, but when we acknowledge that something is unknown and acknowledge and validate the amount of stress that that kind of uncertainty causes us, the worries we have, because ultimately we worry when we, when things are unknown, the future, when we're projecting a negative event, like I'm not going to find parking. And I, you know, and, and just, just allowing ourselves to linger in validation can be helpful. So this part is really important. This is where we're taking a look at the mountain and understanding what it's all about. Again, what does it look like to go through this process? Are you here? Like, are you now with like a notebook and a, and a, and taking notes? No, I'm inviting you when you're thinking about these things to identify an impossible task in your life and holding these questions in a very loose back of your mind way. You probably already have some ideas just listening to this. The next really important thing is when you're thinking about this task is project some positives. So is there anything about this task that will be easy? What are the skills and knowledge that I bring to this task? What parts will be no trouble at all? Like taking the lock off my bike finding a place to put my bike. How will I feel after it's completed or possibly during it, during one of those good times? And this is to start to stimulate a little bit of dopamine. Can I think of an example in my life where I was faced with an impossible task and it ended up being less terrible than I thought? I'll share another story. I ordered these running shoes and they came And I wasn't so sure about them. You know, I wasn't so sure. They kind of fit tightly. They were a little bit more expensive than I hoped to pay for. I would have been really happy paying that amount if I'd loved them, but I was ambivalent about them. And then I wore them a couple times and actually ended up cutting my feet, just getting blisters. And I thought, you know, I'm going to return them. And they have a great return policy, this company. They said, just print off this label, send them back to us free of charge, and we'll refund you but you have to do it within 30 days. And this for me was an impossible task. I don't know. I don't mail stuff. So I didn't know what kind of box you got to bring it to period later. I, you know, I had to print, I don't have a printer. So I got to get my parents or somebody to print the label. And then I wasn't sure because it's just like a random like printed label. Like, can I just use scotch tape? There are all these unknowns, all these things I didn't want to do with such a, it was such a mountain. And then I started, so I was putting it off and I was getting closer and closer and closer to the date. And then I passed the 30 days, well past. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll just keep the shoes. And I wore them again and I, they cut my feet and I was like, oh man. And then eventually I, okay. So I got, I had the label. So I had a box from something else that had arrived. I put the shoes in the box in a, in a plastic bag I use scotch tape, so use my skills and resources and what was available to me, did my best. I, you know, what was the hard stuff? The box. Okay, I had a box because an order for, for grass-fed meat had arrived. 
And, uh, okay. I got the thing printed. That was, that was hard, but I, I, you know, got some help with that, got someone to print it for me. I had scotch tape. I Googled where the peer leader was found out where it was. And I'm doing all this thing, all this stuff already feeling defeated. Cause I thought there's not, they're not going to accept this return. So my dog and I walk and I'm carrying this dumb box and it was a really nice walk. Actually, it was through a part of a neighborhood I never go through. And I started to enjoy that part. And so that helps because I may not have to do that task again, but the fact that there was actually an enjoyable part of it is really helpful to anchor for the next time, because maybe I won't know what the positive is the next time I have to do an impossible task, but you know, you're in the shower and you're sort of like enjoying the warmth of the water and maybe you're worried about having wet hair, but there's something pleasant about it in that in, in glimmers of, of certain aspects of of the moment in the task. So the walk was really nice. But then I was thinking, where am I going to tie the dog? Okay, I got a mask. Like, are they going to da, da, da. finally get to the place? Okay, there it is. It's not so bad. Okay, I found it. And I go in, I have the box and they say, oh, it's not FedEx. Okay, you have to take a picture of the label. And I thought, oh, okay, that's not a big deal. That's fine. Okay, so I took a picture of the label because they can't print me a receipt. Okay, they took the box. They didn't care. It was like a weird grass-fed meat box. They took it and it was gone. And then I walk back and I thought, crap, they're probably going to tell me that they're not going to accept it because it's too late. I felt a little bit of shame. I felt a little bit of dread. And then the next day I get an email. Thank you so much. We've refunded you. The money's back on your credit card. Awesome. And so shout out to that company uh, because that's really awesome. And it was something that for me, when faced with the impossible task is helpful because it what it ended up being worth it and it won't always be worth it. Like it wasn't worth it to drive and go to life labs or this morning, go get my labs done. But, but, but it did turn out well and to linger in the positive to not just say like, okay, whatever, like cool. Um, to say, Oh wow. Okay. Like that was helpful. Now, this is the this, the least <laughs> exciting part or the least fun part. And again, this is just happening in your head. Planning. So what might make this task better? What would it take to take the first step? And do I know what the first step is? What would happen if I fail? The really tough thing about the impossible task is or any task that's multi-faceted is when it's like, I need to do this and that sucks, but in order to do that, then I got to do that. In order to do that, I got to do that. Then I got to wait on that. And then there's that. And then, it, right. I got to mail these shoes. Well, I first need a box. Then I got a label. So I got to print the label. But then once I get the label, how am I going to scotch tape? Is the tape okay? Can you even buy tape now? Tape's closed off. They're only selling food and so on and so on and so on. So I have a bit of a philosophy for these kind of things where done better than perfect, you know? And so, okay. Scotch tape, random label that was printed. What's the first step? Okay. I got to get the label printed. So that was the first, without the label printed, nothing else can happen. And then this is important. What would happen if I fail? Like, you know, because now one of the things that will often create procrastination is that we fear our own criticism after we fail. 
And there are so many sayings and things about failure. If you're not failing, you're not trying, or if you're not falling, you're not trying, or you lose 100% of the shots you don't make, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that you should be failing ultimately because it means you're growing. And this is maybe some where we need to do some work on our inner critic. And this may be helpful to do one-to-one with a therapist or some sort of mental health professional that you trust that you have rapport with. Some journaling. There's lots of resources with cognitive behavior therapy, neural rewiring, you know, Lacey Phillips program to be magnetic. There's lots of ways that we can start to calm and acknowledge our inner critic. Our inner critic in family systems therapy is one of the parts that lives within us to protect us from shame and humiliation. And we internalize the voice, the protective voice, and we're using it to prevent ourselves from being disappointed, humiliated, and shameful. But often it blocks us well before we get to that point, And it is the voice that creates shame. And so it's helpful just maybe to make a promise with yourself. Hey, if you fail, if they won't return the shoes, we're, we're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You know, it's like when you're talking to your son or like your, you can pretend it's your inner child before a game. Hey buddy, even if you and your team lose this game, we're still going to go out for dinner or for ice cream afterwards. You know, is there a way we can talk to ourselves like that? Can we plan to be kind and compassionate? Help. So is there someone who can be my magic wand? Print the label for me. What specifically do I need? That's helpful if you need to ask for help. Who might be able to help and how might I ask? Um, And often with the shutdown mode, with depression, we project our shame onto others and assume that they're going to judge us where very often, you know, it's not, it's not always the case that they are more than willing to be of, of service. Think of a time when you were trying to help a friend who was suffering. You didn't know what to say. You didn't know what to do. And it's almost compassionate to your friend to just give them something they can do to help you. And, and help them feel like a friend. I, I think it's Benjamin Franklin that came up with this where he found that in order to get people to like him, he asked them to do things for him because people don't like cognitive dissonance. So when you're sort of ambivalent about somebody, but now you're doing all these favors for them, it's hard for, first of all, for people to say no, but when you're doing favors for someone and you're not sure what the, you know, you, you, you're like, well, why would I do favors for someone I don't like? I must like them. And you start to think of them more favorably. So you can think of that when you're asking for help, you're just helping people like you more by getting them to do things for you. It's a very queenly mentality, right? How might I ask, you know, what, what way would make me feel good about asking? Um, and finally, reflection. How did it feel to complete the task? Can you linger in that feeling of accomplishment and reward for a minute before moving to the next thing? In depression, we often don't linger in the positive. We don't allow ourselves to take in the positive or to attribute our success to our internal skills, knowledge, and attributes. 
A hallmark of depression is the, that negative events are internalized, like I'm a failure, and positive events are externalized. It was easy, or it only went well because I had help. Therefore, shining the light on the positives when they do occur and strengthening that muscle by lingering in the glimmer. So Deb Dane also, I think it's Deb Dana says, turning glimmers into glows. Okay, I got an email. They're returning my shoes. I get the money back. That's a glimmer. Can I, can I stay there a little bit? Turn it into a glow. Sometimes we need to focus on the glimmers before we can feel the glow. And it can help to rewire the brain to strengthen our ability to face impossible tasks. Because the more glimmers we have, the more likely we are to want to have that experience again, the more we're building dopamine into our prefrontal cortex, cortex strengthening that muscle, getting ourselves to want to do it. Now, next time I have to return shoes, it won't be as hard because I'll just, okay, I got to find a box, get the label, and and maybe they won't accept it. But I because I've had that positive experience, I may not be as bowled over by an, a negative experience. So in conclusion, know that depression is a sticky situation. Our nervous system, our emotions, and our thoughts are intertwined to make us more susceptible to negative emotion and negative thoughts. Our bodies are exhausted and in a state of nervous system collapse. Often tasks feel harder to do because they are. We don't have the physical strength or the mental motivation or the internal resources to just jump out of bed and just get her done. And it actually might not feel good to do so because of that shutdown response without enough cortisol. It's hard to activate, especially if we're at like a two out of 10 on the activation scale and we want to get to an eight out of 10, it might not be possible or feel good. Maybe the goal is like a four. We also don't get the same reward from dopamine when completing a task or thinking about engaging in a task. And we don't have as much dopamine that will lead us to want to do certain tasks. And so acknowledgement for this system is a great first step, but there are ways that we can tackle the problem. Slowly moving the body and tackling that black mountain is actually helpful for gathering momentum to support ourselves through or even accelerate our movement through a depressive or shutdown episode. So thank you everyone for listening. I'm Dr. Tali Marcajani. I'm a naturopathic doctor based in Ontario. I am running a series of programs and you can check out more at my website below, but I also share videos on meditation, on nutrition, on mindfulness, and on yoga on my YouTube channel. So please like and subscribe, leave a comment below. Let me know what you thought of this video. What impossible task are you faced with? Were any of these tips helpful? How do you get through an impossible task or depressive or shutdown episode? Thank you so much, everyone. Take care.